2: Hello and welcome to the How-To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Where do good ideas come from, and how do we have more of them? Albert Reid is a former journalist, the managing director of Condé Nast for Great Britain, and the author of a new book that seeks to answer that very question, the imagination muscle. He joined us at The Conduit for a conversation with the former BBC Arts editor, and now the director of The Barbican, Will Gompertz enjoy.
3: Hello everybody, good evening. It's lovely to see so many people here. I've never been to the conduit before. No, it's lovely. It's great. This is Albert. Albert's written a book. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But I just thought I'd just tell you a little story very quickly, which I heard. um, uh, um, Do you ever have heard of Rick Waitman? Okay, well, Albert and I have, because we're of a certain age. But Rick Waitman is a brilliant musician, and, and he just was telling me this story the other day, and it just, I, thought, I thought I'd share it, because it just made me laugh. Um, and, and he was in a band called Yes, um, and so that was like a big 70s rock band. And, and in, the, in the 70s, rock bands had a really bad reputation with hoteliers. Uh, like trashed hotels, that's what they did. And he was telling me about all the st- awful stories of Yes, at the time, they once they once bought scuba diving equipment and flooded the whole floor to test out the scuba diving equipment. <laughs> Didn't work, of course. Um, and anyway, so one day they were going to do a gig in Newcastle. And um, and, and th- 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 there's one thing, Rick said, you need to know if you're in a major band in the 70s, is you always got to go on the seventh floor. You know, the seventh floor, if you're a major band, you went on the seventh floor and that, yes, we're a major band. And he was checking in for, this, uh, for, for their gig that night, and the, the person on reception said, there's your key, Mr. Uh, Wakeman, that's 612, that's yours, John, that's 615, and that's yours, Pete, that's 612. And Rick said, hang on a second, hang on a second, we're a major British rock band. We should be on the seventh floor. And without missing a beat, the receptionist said, we had the Who in last night, we no longer have a seventh floor. <laughs> so, there we go. That's jolly, isn't it? That's a jolly start. Um, so, we're going to talk about creativity. We're going to talk about ideas. We're going to talk about the human imagination, which is the most incredible thing. And we're going to talk um, about Albert Reed's book. And Albert and I have a small family connection, which is that his, fa- his grandfather was the most extraordinary art historian called Herbert Reed. Who has, is responsible for so many great things in this country, which is to do with art. And he, he wrote a wonderful book once, uh, and Faber and Faber, I think it was, republished it, and they asked me to do the forward, which was like unbelievable, sort of privilege. Uh, and, and Albert got in touch with me and said he liked the forward. And um, that was very kind, Albert. Thank you for that. I did. It was
4: a very beautifully written
3: introduction and a very, very good description of his work. So I felt very proud that he had you writing it. Well, thank you very much. That was great. So, on to your book, Yes. The Imagination Muscle. This is the fella. I suppose the first question is, what is the imagination muscle?
4: Well, the imagination muscle is is a... Is a A kind of conceit. It's an an idea about idea generation. It's it's the the sense that the imagination is something that we can work at. It's not something fixed, imposed on us from above, in in the way that we think of inspiration, the word coming from the Latin inspiro, to to be breathed upon by the gods. My thesis in this book is that the imagination is something that we can develop. It's like a the physical side of our lives or the mental health side of our ideas. We the imagination is something that that is, is a muscle, it can be worked at. And we work at our physical well-being and our mental well-being. Why don't we work at our imaginative well-being? And the idea came to me from a book that I came across a very long time ago by a French scriptwriter called Jean-Claude Carrière. And Jean-Claude Carrière was this wonderful. French scriptwriter who wrote films with Louis Buñuel and he's a, he was a French legend. We don't know much about him here, but he, he's a big, he was a big institution in France and in his book, The Secret Language of Film, he, had this, he wrote about this ritual that he and Buñuel would go through at the end of each day of filming and they would go back to their hotel and they'd set themselves this exercise to, to, to come up with an idea for a story and they'd go away for half an hour and they'd come back and meet in the bar and they'd tell themselves each other their stories. And, and Carrier says, this was a way of keeping our imaginations on their toes. This was because the imagination is a muscle. You've got to work at the imagination. And this idea of the imagination muscle stayed with me for, for many, many years and really culminated in, in this book. And so this, this is something that I really wanted to explore and something that I've that I've worked on in my mind and in, in the book um, over the last two or three years. And the, the idea of the, the imagination also for me is a very important one because... I have a day job at Condé Nast where it's a creative business. We rely on ideas to keep ourselves fresh and to keep ahead of the zeitgeist. And in the way that we secure paper supplies for the magazines, in my view, we have to secure idea generation. We have to create an atmosphere of psychological safety where ideas can be spread and ideas can be suggested by junior people without without the fear of, of, of failure or rejection or humiliation. So the, the idea of, of, of how we treat ideas in in the office environment is something else that that has been very much on my mind in in, in recent years. And then finally, perhaps the most important way I think about the imagination is really at a sort of societal level of are we generating enough ideas in in society? There are certain elements, certain data points, as we might say, which would indicate that we're having fewer ideas than we used to. There's research done by Stanford which suggests that The amount of R and D investment needs to double every 13 years just to keep the levels of productivity going up at the same rate as they have done in the past. And then you see that the actual productivity levels in this country have actually flatlined in the last 15 years, and we are not really growing in the way that we should be in terms of idea generation. And if we look at the arts, we look at the age of people performing at Glastonbury has gone from something like 27 to 49. Or we look at <laughs> Netflix ratings going down. We look at the top 10 films in Hollywood last year, which consisted of Avatar, um, Puss in Boots, Thor, Top Gun, the sequel. And you think to yourself, are we really coming up with sufficiently good ideas? Are we really moving the moving the world forward in the way that we, we used to? And there's a, an idea that's been written about elsewhere, where making the comparison with 100 years ago, if you if you were to go to sleep in 1895 and you were to wake up in 1923, you would find a world utterly and completely transformed. You'd wake up to find electricity. You'd find the car. You'd find the skyscraper. You'd find the aeroplane. You'd find cardboard, plastic. You'd find the hamburger. The world was, was completely different to the world... Of of even 30 or so years before whereas if you went to sleep in 1995 and woke up in 2023 and looked around you, what exactly would be different? Of course there are big differences with the mobile phone and the internet but really not quite as much has changed as we might think and and my line really in this book is change is happening to us rather than from us and of course there are things happening, of course there are advances in gene editing and in in electric cars and in all sorts of things, but nonetheless, our, my, my provocative question to the world is: Are we are we moving at the rate that we should be? And are we really celebrating the imagination? Are we are we understanding the imagination? Are we working at the imagination? Are we systemizing the way it works on a, both on a personal level and also on an external level? Do we do we understand how to build cities that generate ideas and offices? And buildings, and and the way we work with each other, the way we meet with each other. What can we learn from history, from the arts, from scientists, from business? So th- this is really the background of the I, book. I, uh, a long I, answer. I love that. No,
3: it's a great answer. I love the idea of what if you went to sleep in 1993 and you woke up again in 2023? And I think, where the where the fuck's my hair gone? <laughs> <laughs> that would be my number one question. Why why haven't it? Yeah, yeah, it's them? like Jesus. I never. I who knew. Um, so. Um, so this is such a great uh, book. It's so so well written. And, and what Albert hasn't told you, because he's a man of of, of of great humility, is that he studied classics at Oxford and then did an MBA in INSEAD. And that that learning is 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 worn very lightly, but very well throughout the book. So the the idea of the human imagination sits quite a lot with classical antiquity. We go all the way back to prehistoric times to the ca- caves, but we, we talk we talk a lot about and rooting it in in sort of classical Greek philosophy.
4: Yes, well, as you say, it goes further back than that. I mean, one of the early parts of my book is about the the caves and cave art, which, of course, we all know about. But do we really understand the enormous miraculous nature of those paintings in the caves in places like Chauvet and Lascaux in France? <laughs> I mean, these 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 paintings are. 40,000 years old. I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable length of time. And they, they appear fully formed and kind of miraculous in their artistic skill and integrity. And and then they don't change at all for tens of thousands of years after that. And so you get to the point where the, the, the paintings in, 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 in Chauvet are 40,000 years old and the paintings in Lascaux are 20,000 years old. And you think to yourself, well actually the distance between those two periods is roughly the same as Lascaux in the present day. So we have this Strange thing of this explosion of art all over the world, this miraculous sort of eruption of, of the imagination and its and its manifestation in in beautiful drawings and paintings used with using charcoal and flint and all these things, and and then you have this enormous then you have silence again. The world returns to silence, and then you have, as Will is saying, the first signs of 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 something that's very much very very primal, something very deep inside us that requires. Storytelling It requires this idea of, of telling telling each other stories that somehow describe the world and give us this refuge from reality. It's a very, very early human impulse that we need to escape from reality. I mean, T.S. Eliot says, you know, man cannot bear too much reality. And that, that's something you see in the very, very early... Times of you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the tales of Achilles, but you also see it in the Akawatis and in, in, in the medieval Islamic world, and you see it in, in the tales that the Inuit told their children. So there's this storytelling urge, this desire, this this kind of almost overpowering need to, to, tell, to tell each other stories and to create imagined worlds, to explain the world and its scariness to ourselves and, and its and and then also on the other side, you have religions using storytelling in a, in a more subtle way to control the societies that they, they 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 dominate. And I think that's another interesting aspect of the imagination how it's used uh, in, in in a political sense to
3: to to dominate and to control groups of people. But Socrates and Plato were sniffy about the imagination.
4: Well, they were
3: is so, they, is that, that It was all about rationality for them.
4: It was. They saw uh, Plato, uh, Socrates, Plato thought saw. The imagination as a dangerous runaway emotional kind of trait that could can only end in tears they, they, they didn't see it as anything other than um, than a problem although they made a grudging concession to Homer they thought that was okay <laughs> but generally speaking you're right they they didn't see the value of the imagination and really people didn't see the value of the imagination for, for centuries to come and not really until the until the until the romantics although it was, it was there it was seen they didn't nobody really kind of captured it in a way that that was then done by the Romantics.
3: It's always struck me that the, 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 the human imagination is the, is is the thing that makes us distinct from any other animal. Mm. That we have this extraordinary facility, don't we? Which is, you know, you could be in this room, so in this time and in this place, but you could be imagining the meal you're going to cook in three week, three hours' time, and who are you going to That's cook many it people with? Hour, probably. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and the sort of conversations you're going to have. You could be listening to this, but you could be in another time in another place having a completely different idea. It's called the imagination. You're stepping out, and it's an extraordinary facility. Just, just to write a text, the amount of imagination that requires is more than any computer will ever have. It's more than any other animal can have. And so the argument goes, and I think it's a Socratic argument, that, that the ability to imagine, i.e. to ask questions, ultimately, is the thing that makes us most human and therefore makes us feel closest to the life force. It makes us it makes us feel that our most alive.
4: I completely agree. I think I think it does make us most alive. But I think it is what defines us in a way. And it's what is, is solved the problems of the past and is going to solve the problems in the future if we only choose to exert it and to exercise the imagination, if we if we remind ourselves that it's there it, within all of us. And we may not all start from the same starting point. We may not all get to the same end point. But nonetheless, I firmly believe we all have imagination. So a like, lot of people say to me, oh, I haven't got an imagination. But I, 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 don't, I don't buy that. I think everyone's got an imagination. And, and really, we, 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 for a lot of people, we have to rediscover it and we have to get into the habit of using it more proactively. And to, I mean, to, to the point about, what was your, the earlier question you said?
3: No idea. I was going to say another anecdote. There's this, it's a, a, it's about having ideas and about the process of having ideas. Where, yes. and, and where do they come from?
4: Yes, and the other thing I was going to say, I remember now, is... The, I think the imagination is such a big kind of nebulous sort of shapeless word. I think we we have to try and pin it down a bit and it's not easy to do but the man that who did it best for me and I write about it in the book in the imagination master is called Johannes Nicholas Tetchens and he's this German philosopher that nobody's ever heard of but he divides the imagination into three different categories and he starts with the first one he, he gives them unpronounceable German words but it, the first one is the imagination as a sort of stream of consciousness, like breathing, this loose, uncontrolled, you know, imagining what to have for dinner, or imagining that somebody doesn't like you, or this kind of, this kind of floating sense of imagining the world around you, often driven by your, your tiredness, your hunger, your, your physical well-being. So that, for him, is the baseline of imagination. And then above that, you have what I call, to reinvent his, to reinterpret his, his, his idea, is the Pegasus imagination where you're joining two ideas together. And that is, that is, I think, what most of us do when we think of imagining, when, when, we, when, we ha- when we make a connection that nobody else has made before. And often these connections come from different parts of our lives. And I think that's the satisfying, higher-functioning form of the imagination that we don't, we don't completely systemize or understand. But that, for me, is where the bulk of what we think of as imagining in, in, in its best sense happens and then you have the third level defined by Tetchins, which is this idea of uh, i call it fusion and this is really where the great artists and poets operate and 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 someone like coleridge would say only the poets really operate this this kind of on the peak of this mountain of imagination where where a great work of art comes almost to, to not, you can't see the joins. It's, it's a new entity in itself, and it's come from a seemingly miraculous place. And we think of the great works of art, the great works of music, and the great, the great um, works of literature. These are what Tertians would say are the highest points of the imagination, accessible to only a very few, a very small number of us. And really, the the the, 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 the meat and potatoes of the imagination, of, of of what we all want to seek, is is this second tier, the Pegasus level, where we make connections, and it could be a thriller writer. It could be a politician using a metaphor. It could be a comedian telling a joke, bringing unlikely connections together. It could be an entrepreneur seeing that the need for something that nobody else has identified. So I think this is really where we operate. This is the, the, this is the field of imaginative inquiry that we all need to focus on.
3: There was a great guy called Albert Rothenstein, who is a sort of psychiatrist and psychologist, American. He might still be alive. And it's exactly to that point, Albert, that, that he, he came up with this notion of homospatial thinking. And homospatial thinking is basically exactly that. You take an old idea, you introduce it to a new idea, you interpret it through your own personality, and that creates something completely new. Yeah. So, so uh, the obvious one is the encyclopedia. The encyclopedia used to be written by one person for, for many people. Along comes the new idea, the, 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 the disruptor, which is the internet, and suddenly it's an, it's an encyclopedia is written by lots of people for one person. And so it's exactly the same idea, but 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 what has changed is a disruptive force has come along to make it an idea which wasn't possible before possible, and then you interpret it through your own personality. So it's got three three parts to it, and everybody does it all the time. But what it does tell us also is there's no such thing as an original idea; that all ideas have origins.
4: I think that's true, and I and I write about this in the book about how we need to. Uh, the, the notion of originality, really, I don't know mm-hmm. if you'd agree. Well, is, is a sort of eighteenth, nineteenth century the romantic invasion. myth. It's a romantic yeah. myth. Yeah. That originality is somehow super desirable and super important and, and singular, and singular, mm. yes, and magical and, and miraculous. Whereas, I think we need to sort of try and penetrate the notion of originality and try and understand what we mean by it. In the in the book, I write about Gutenberg, who, in, in inverted commas, invented the printing press and indeed he did, but what we don't talk about so much is the printing press had been around for many centuries before. The Chinese had had a crack at it, the Japanese, the Koreans, they'd all had versions of the printing press, but nobody had quite put the components together in the right way, meaning that Gutenberg was was, was able, because he had the, the, the benefit of the Western alphabet and because he had access to ink and paper, and he was a perfectionist in working out the levels of ink that worked on the density of the paper, and his father worked in the mint, so he understood about, about pressing metal. And he looked to the olive press and thought, that's a good idea. We could take that over here. He made this connection. And so he invented the first successful printing press. And, and a lot of businesses are like that. If we think of Steve Jobs or Dyson, they're not really inventing anything new. What they're doing is they're executing at a very, very high level. They're, they're, they're often simplifying and they're reducing the components. And they're, they're finding a way to do something that we already had but we didn't have it in quite the way that they have now envisaged it. And I think the same can be said with, with art, and I don't know if you'd agree, Will, I mean, if we talk about Picasso, this great original artist, and indeed he was a genius, and original painter, but if you take Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, which is, was this painting painted in 1906, Seven. 1907, and then, um, I've got my... <laughs> My fierce interview. I'm again. just your uh, <laughs> grandfather on your shoulder. Yes. That's all I am. Well, you're on my shoulder. Um, and then the painting was initially rejected. It was initially, and you, you you know this as well as I do, if not better. Well, this was a painting that his collect his his dealer looked at and was kind of they he kind of winced and thought this is no this is a this is a disaster. What a tragedy for French painting. I think was what one of his friends said. And the painting was put away and 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 really didn't really emerge again for another fifteen years or thereabouts and then was subsequently identified as the great launch pad of, of, of Cubism, of, of really, of modernism. Really, the whole idea of modernism started from this painting, painted in this little um, shack in Montmartre, and then put away and not, and, and not seen. And, and, and it was seen as this great original breakthrough. And yet, if you look at it and, and the sources of where his art came from, he was what he was doing was combining Ideas in a way that nobody else had done before. He was taking the ideas of Cezanne and the the, the style of Cezanne. He was taking taking Iberian face masks and he was taking uh, Iberian masks from his homeland of Spain. And he was, you know, he was he was taking other artistic influences. And then he was also, unlike any other other artist in Paris at the time, was wandering around the Musée d'Ethnographie, where where he was stumbling down dusty corridors and finding these these wonderful but pieces of African art that were lying discarded on the floor and nobody much paid attention to in, in Paris at the beginning of the 20th century. But he saw something that other artists hadn't seen, and he, he managed to combine all these influences into this breakthrough painting and seeing something that was really redefining really what art did and making art, I don't know if you know the picture, but it's, it's, it's of these six prostitutes. It's, it's, it's kind of squashed together in a square shape, and, and they are all glaring at the picture, they, and the looking at the picture makes you feel very uncomfortable and it's kind of scary, it's kind of intimidating. And really this was something that people in that day, those days couldn't, couldn't deal with. What did...
3: Well, it's a morality painting, isn't it? But what, yes. what's so interesting about the Picasso, and what's so rewarding for all of us, is that what, we're like almost entirely identical to each other, to sort of a tiny percentage point, or point 0.000, 0.000, but we are all individual, and each one of us sees the world slightly differently and so if somebody if everybody in this room wrote three sentences on this bottle of water on this table no three sentences would be identical every three sentences would be slightly different and it's i think it's those people like picasso who can understand that you don't have to have the whole idea you know that, that you know it was a you know la demoiselle de was a, a direct lift off the bathers paintings which he would studied from yeah. of of Suzanne. you know exactly the same colors same composition, same fruit in the middle. Uh, As you say, the ethnographic museum, the Iberian masks, just all put it down, and it's sort of like a great chef started to think, well, what happens if I put that idea with this idea and shape that? And then, what do I think? What do I, and it's just finding that room for the inner inner you to have that confidence, to say, what do I actually think? And that's the breakthrough when you say, okay, I have given myself permission to have a thought about all these things and interpret them in my way. There's a great story about the artist Bridget Riley. And Bridget Riley is a, probably the preeminent British artist up there with Hockney, I guess, um, and a, a fantastic painter. And when she was a young student, uh, you know, in a, a teenager, she 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 could paint better than almost anybody. It was just amazing. And when you look back at her back catalogue, uh, it's her copies of Van Eyck in the National Gallery, extraordinary. But she didn't really kick on. And so she loved, she loved Suzanne and she loved all the post-impressionists and she loved those French, the, the French painters of the, of, of the uh, 19th and early 20th century and, and Seurat. And she got to 30 years old and like um, nobody was interested in what she was doing because it was just the same. It had no Bridget in it. And, she, and she, there was this moment when her father had a very bad car crash, all, all in the same week, and her long-term lover, Decided to end their relationship. And this is a woman who loves figuration and she loves colour. And she's just desperately sad. She's 30 years old, her father's in peril, her love has gone away, her career's going nowhere. She you knows she's she she starts to consider herself a failure, and she gets really pissed off. She might be has a couple of glasses of gin, I don't know. But she gets a canvas from the studio and she just paints the whole thing in black. And she says, I'm going to send that to my lover to show him what I really think. You know, I'm really, really angry. This is somebody who always paints with colour and, and figurative paintings. And she, anyway, she goes to bed. She gets up in the morning. She sees this black canvas, which she hadn't done all over black. And she says, "Ah, oh, that's quite interesting. And she goes and gets her paints. And she gets, a, a, dabs a bit of white paint onto a brush. And about a third of the way up the painting, she just draws a horizontal line, which creates two forms. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that line, she looks at a Sirat picture, a landscape picture she had by the pointless Sirat, which had these curves of the hills. Still in her studio to this day, had these curves of the hills. And so she, on that white line, she drew a curve. It's lovely, sort of like, like, a, like a wave of sea. And so it's black and white, now three forms. And, and she stood back. And she thought, oh, my God. That's an amazing, I'm original, onto to, I'm onto something. original painting. And she called it The Kiss. And suddenly this artist who is stuck, lonely, desperate, thought she was a failure, suddenly invents a whole new way of seeing the world called op art. I mean, it's extraordinary. And if you see her work now and how it's progressed from the 60s to 70s, the 80s to this very day, and she could have stopped if she didn't have that inner belief that what she had to say and see in the world was unique enough to be worth sharing. And the thing is, we've all got that. And Picasso had it. And if we can find it, as you have in a way with this book, it's an amazing Way it's an amazingly liberating feeling that you can suddenly start to express yourself. But before we get away, I want to, can I add yes, one thing, please, to that? Yes, please. I, th- I
4: think that you can give yourself a big head start by make, by putting on your what I call the imaginative palette, having having in your mind these different these different sources. I think that that is what marks out the, the these great leaps forward. Is that the people who have bothered to to, to look in, in unexpected corners and unite unexpected elements together, are starting from a, a better place than people who just read whatever, what everyone else is reading and watch what everyone else is watching. And if you think of the other example I, I, I write about, is, is Lin-Manuel Miranda, that, who composed Hamilton, and this probably the, the most exciting and original musical of the last decade. But what we what we don't always remember is that he he part of his, his the, the first level of his genius for me is drawing in these different components he draws in very very conventional musical elements like you know the 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 narrate the, 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 the nemesis as narrator you know you have this Aaron Burr being the being his the person who eventually uh, shoots him which is a direct lift of Jesus Christ Superstar and Judas Iscariot uh, narrating that and Amadeus and Salieri, so you have, these very, you have this rather unoriginal idea, then you have the chorus in, in, in Hamilton, which as we know comes from Greek tragedy and we see it in Sweeney Todd, and so you have these very, very conventional elements of a musical but then he brings in these other layers that nobody else had ever done, he brought in rap and hip-hop, which perhaps some people have done but not to the same, to the same exit level of execution as he did, and then he brought in this subject of this, this relatively unknown founding father based on this Thick, dense biography by Ron Chernow, and nobody else had ever brought these strands together. And that, for me, is the is the is the platform on which really brilliant ideas break through. And I think to have that ability to, to look in unexpected corners of your life and to find to open up open yourself up to things which you may not feel comfortable reading or observing or you find challenging. That, for me, is the the measure of somebody who then, who can then make the leap to something. Revolutionary,
3: but again, bringing in old ideas, doing it through completely. his own personality, yes. and, and, and
4: adding something. You know, Shakespeare did it with Romeo and Juliet. That was the sixth version of Romeo and Juliet. This is not something that is, is is new, but but you have to start with something that comes from the that you reinvent, and you and you and the whole notion of where originality starts and stops is is, is fascinating to me. Yeah. not completely clear.
3: So, if the imagination is a muscle, I would argue, Albert, that curiosity is a treadmill and i remember um i remember interviewing a guy called jj J. abrams um have you heard of him yes. he um, and um he was he, he was very young very successful very good looking so i thought a total bastard frankly. <laughs> um but and we had a, he was rebooting star trek i think yeah. um and and i said to him you know are you not you know, so when I was at the BBC doing that job, I wasn't, I wasn't just hanging out with him. I don't want to get the wrong idea. And, and um, I said, you know, you're not a bit nervous about all those Trekkies. People love these characters, they love these stories. You're not worried about upsetting them with your reboot. And he said, to be honest, I don't think about them at all. I don't want to be arrogant, but actually what I do is I just ask myself questions. So uh, I say to, well, where is Captain Kirk? And if he's on the Starship Enterprise, what area? and who's he speaking to? If it's Spock, what are they saying? If they have an argument, what's sort the of ramifications? He said, I keep on asking questions like this, and at the end of it, I have a shooting script. Uh, and this, 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 and if, if you look at the great creative breakthroughs um, through, from the entire history of mankind, it's because somebody, somewhere, has asked an incredible question. Yeah. It's always about curiosity. So it's actually imagination, the imagination muscle, isn't about knowing the answers, isn't it? Completely. It's about asking the right question.
4: Yes, and and, and allowing your mind to be drawn in in unexpected and sometimes difficult directions, and not thinking to yourself, I don't understand, that's not for me, I don't understand that. I think think the the discipline and effort required, and if if you're lucky, you're curious enough that you're taken there of your own volition, but I think that that, that is the, the secret to success.
3: Let's talk about observation. observation. So, so, so you talk about a whole chapter on observation. I've written a book called See What You're Missing, which is about how artists see the world and how we can see the world afresh through their eyes. Um, I argue in my book that we spend most of our lives really not seeing anything. I start with an anecdote by David Foster Wallace, who is an American essayist, and he did a commencement speech at Kenyon College in, I think, 2005. And it was two liberal arts students in America. And he said, you know, you've all been taught critical thinking to within an inch of your life, but I can test that you hardly ever think critically. And he told this story about um, these two little fish, It's a little parable. (laughs) And these two little fish are swimming along. It's a lovely, warm, sunny day. These two little fish are swimming along. And this bigger, older fish is swimming in the other direction. And as the bigger, older fish passes the two little fish, the bigger, older fish says to them, morning, boys, how's the water? And the bigger, or older fish swims that way, and the two little fish swim the other way. And after about twenty meters, one of the little fish says to the other little fish, "What the hell is water?" <laughs> uh, and in a way, that's how we spend quite a lot of our our lives. Yes, is,
4: I'd say that the equivalent of water is culture. I think we 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 we're brought up and raised in in in, in culture, and, and we we don't realise that we are made by it, but we're also to some extent imprisoned by it. I don't know what you think. I mean, I I always think of of Leonardo da Vinci, who was this person who understood the effect of shadows and light on art in such a deep and profound way, and yet he was completely unable to paint like an impressionist who were really the the artists who who enacted his ideas. And and you think to yourself, why did it take, what was it, four centuries for these ideas to come through? And really, one feels that the cultural century in one's mind is, is both a force for good and in some ways a force for restriction in the, in the way we think and that's why people like Picasso or Stravinsky or these modernists are, are so revolutionary is because they somehow jump out of the culture or yeah. at least edge out of the culture to some to a degree and they push the culture forward and redefine the culture in, in small ways. They can't make the leap from Leonardo to, to Manet. They can't do that but they, they, they nonetheless these things do happen through the work of individuals.
3: Do, do you... Do you agree with that, Will? You know, I, I completely agree. I, I was just thinking about having a conversation with D- David Holkney. Do you remember in 2012, he, he, he made those paintings of Bridlington in the northeast of England? East. He kind of reinvented landscape painting, painting in a way. And they were, you know, this is the northeast coast of Yorkshire, where let's be honest, it's not that sunny that often, and the wind can cut, cut you in half. And yet and yet he, he made these paintings which were high key colorful. You know, so he put LA into Bridlington. And you know the the, the the tree trunks were purple and the grass was golden and the leaves were like crystals, and and I said to him, it's fine, you know, but it's it's not real, you know. You've heightened key, you know. They're you know they're very jolly, <laughs> and, and and he looked at me quite cross. Uh, and, and he's a very very gentle and lovely man. He just said, you haven't looked properly, have you? And he said, people don't really look. And he he said, it's really hard to look. And so I went up to Bridlington, and it wasn't a particularly great day, and I stood in the woods where he painted, and I just did as he told me. And for 30 minutes, I really looked. And without a word of a lie, as they say, over about 30 minutes, the tree trunks turned purple, the grass turned golden, and the leaves looked like crystals. And it was, I'd never looked. I'd been taught as a child what a wood looks like.
4: Uh, would they have done, had you not seen the painting?
3: No, I think I, think, I think I wouldn't have had the reference point or the confidence to allow myself yeah. to think that this might actually be possible. It's, it's mm. exactly your point about being trapped by your culture, about what you're allowed to believe and not to believe. We brought up, you know, paths are muddy. Uh, trees Tree, tree trunks are, are brown and leaves are green. Mm. And it's really difficult to, to break out of those assumptions of that prison.
4: Yes, and I, I would argue it's the same in science, it's the same in business. The, the, we're all trapped in ways of thinking and, and really the task is to edge our ways out in ways that we we can through through the power of the imagination. And for me, the imagination in business, in science, in art, it's it's the same thing. It's the same power, this magical force within us that, that allows us occasionally to do this.
3: I love that quote from Andy Warhol, that. that uh, I, good business is the best art, because this notion of actually creating a business is really very difficult, because it, all it is is an idea, it's so abstract. And it's only through human energy and intellect that it's applied to become something material. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary jump. Can we talk about AI? Yes. Because here we are talking about the human imagination, we're saying how great it is. Is it about to be trumped by machinery?
4: I think there's a I think there's a positive take and a negative take on AI and the imagination. I think the negative one is that, and we already see it, is that, that the that the, that AI is gradually it's like a rising tide is gradually eroding the sort of lower level activities of the food of, of imagination. Things that are lower down in the food chain are already being done by by technology, whether it's music for advertising or copywriting or. Designing T-shirts. This can now be done very, very effectively and and at no cost. Uh, and the question, to my mind, is how far up does the tide rise? Does the tide eventually encompass all artistic activity, or does it stop at a certain level? Is is there a, is there a world where we're watching films or script? Os, the Oscars are given to AI scripts or to AI-driven films, or that AI wins the Turner Prize or AI. You know, wins, wins it, won, it, won a, it won
3: a photography prize a few, a few months did, ago. Yeah. yeah.
4: It did. So maybe that's the beginning of something. I think the I think the positive take on AI and 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 the imagination and the artistic world is that it is it is very, if you use it correctly, it can be the the, the empowering tool. I think if you work in in video games or in special effects, you can do things with AI that would previously have taken a team of twenty or thirty people to do. So I think it's liberating. For certain types of imaginative activity, certain types of artistic and, and 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 creative forces. So I think, you know, what they say, what is often said, is your job won't be taken by AI, but it may be taken by somebody who's using AI more effectively than you are. And I think that that is that is the interesting question we all have to grapple. with. I mean,
3: with. you run Condé Nast, and you, yeah. you know, amazing magazines: New Yorker, GQ, Vogue, all these extraordinary magazines. Could they be written by ChatGPT? No. tell us why
4: because they're not the Ch- chat chat GPT isn't isn't out there it's not witnessing the world it's not it's not it's not it's not out in the Ukraine it's not it's not t- walking the streets and talking to people outside the, the, the chat GPT is only as good as the information that it can, can harness from the world wide Web from the internet and even then it only goes up to a certain date I think the the, the danger for media companies is that we are I, I think there are all sorts of data and privacy and legal issues coming down the road in terms of how AI interacts with media businesses and with their web content. I mean we've been always all media companies have been have had a tacit deal with the likes of Google that we can we allow the Google spiders to search our, our material because that will allow us to be appearing high up in the search results and we get traffic and we can monetize the traffic. But if if instead of reading an article in the New Yorker about the Ukraine you're reading a summary of that article on chat then the media company is completely cut out of the cut out of the equation so it's a much bigger deal for media businesses now uh, this the, the impending potential um, theft of content that is, that is happening
3: so how do you get around it
4: well by working with with regulatory environments and with with regulatory bodies and with 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 the, with the AI players but it's not easy as we know these things take years um, so it's not easy
3: and it's I, be I, I love that notion of being the first receiver when it comes to knowledge, your, your AI is not in the Ukraine. AI is yeah. not whatever. But do you, do you, can you foresee? I mean, we'd a, a moment where I mean, what it, what is extraordinary about the imagination, as we say before said before, is it's individual and it's kind of random, um, and and you never know what the bits of somebody's going to put together to create a new idea. But do you ever do you see AI ever being able to function at a high level? Um, a human, the be- human imagination could work out?
4: I think. I think the jury's out. I don't know the answer to that. I think. I think. I think we, we, we we'll see where the rising tide stops, and if it does mm. stop, I think. I think there are all sorts of benefits. I. I don't think it's by any means a negative for, for, for the creative world. I think there's a there's a sense of we're all, as I said, we're all imprisoned by our cultures, by our experience, by our expertise, and I think there's the, what's it called the Einstelling effect. Do you know what that is? Where, where which is, which, <laughs> is, is a, which is where experience impedes. The way, considering new ways of solving problems, and I think we're all, particularly as we get on in life, we're all, to some extent, trapped by our expertise. We, we you know, there's that Buddhist saying: that in the in the, in the beginner's mind there are lots of possibilities, In the expert's mind there are very few. And I think AI can. Can challenge you. It can it can it can make you think differently. You can th- you can throw it questions, and it will give you answers. It could then prompt you. It can prompt you back, as it were, and then it can lead you down alleys that you may not have gone on your own. I think one of the things. That I find in my day job, in my working work, my working life at Condé Nast, is is how do you stay creative over time? How do you how do you remain egoless and allow ideas from other people to come in? If if you're, I think a lot of people who run businesses have always been accustomed to being right most of the time, and they think they are still right most of the time. But the world changes around them, and 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 with that, ideas that may not have. I, I find myself. Somebody says, let's try X and I say, Well we tried that five years ago and it didn't work and sort of dismiss it. But I now try not to do that. I'm now trying to think, well actually maybe the world has changed, and maybe I haven't changed enough with it. And we're trained, we're educated to treat life like a chessboard, where the pieces moved in move in preordained directions, when in fact, as we see around us, the chessboard is changing and maybe the pieces are moving vertically or moving the, the bishops are moving horizontally. So, I mean what you're And talking we so about... we have to keep it an open mind, and that really is part of the whole essence of keeping our imaginations muscular.
3: And you touch on this, and it goes back to AI, which is based on pushing in loads and loads of data, lots of knowledge, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But actually a lot of artists, and Picasso's the one who I think summed it up the best, actually wants to do the opposite. So Picasso's famous quote is, you know, it took me five years to paint like Raphael, but a lifetime to paint like a child. Yeah. I actually to get back, you, you call it the beginner's mindset, but to get back to that naive, Open eyed, non um, um, judgmental position where actually you are open to receive ideas from your imagination muscle.
4: One of the things I found very striking in my research in this book is, is, is the relationship between science and art and between the greatest scientists and art. And if you, there's a fascinating piece of research that shows that Nobel Prize winners in science tend to have a disproportionate interest in artistic activity. So, so if you take the, you take uh, Richard Feynman, who was the uh, physicist, he would, he would, he won, when did he win the Nobel Prize? He won the prize, prize in 64, I think it was. And he would, was also an artist, and he would he would paint in his spare time. There's a quote I want to read you by him. Do you mind if I do this, Will?
3: No, no, crack on.
4: And he really saw art as a way of explaining science to the world. This is what Richard Feynman said, he said, so he, won the, he was a particle physicist, and he won the, the, the Nobel Prize in 1965. And in an introduction to a collection of his art, he wrote, I wanted very much to learn to draw, to convey an emotion I have about the beauty of the world. It's an appreciation of the mathematical beauty of nature, of how she works inside, a realisation that the phenomena we see result from the complexity of the inner workings between atoms, a feeling of how dramatic and wonderful it is. It's a feeling of awe, of scientific awe, which I felt could be communicated through a drawing to someone who also had that emotion, I could remind him for a moment of this feeling about the glories of the universe. And I love a scientist writing about feeling, and I think it's mm. so fascinating. And then you've got Alexander Fleming, and you know, he was also, you know, he discovered penicillin. He won, he won the, the prize in 1930, 45, and he he was also an artist. He, he was a member of the Chelsea Arts Club, and he painted in his spare time. And there does seem to be a connection between, between scientists who are most open-minded and perhaps, I mean, Fleming wasn't a very good artist. His paintings were derided, he was mocked for his painting, but one can't help feeling that this this ability to be a beginner over here, this this ability to try something new and to have an open mindset where you are open to failure, to humiliation, to ostensible humiliation, if you choose to feel it that way, uh, to trying something and failing, is, is, is something that goes back to making you a better Person in your in your main job, and I think I think I find that a very very important lesson. I think one thing that I really feel strongly about is we all need to have something in our lives where we are a beginner, where we're trying something new, and and we, it takes courage, it takes a bit of humility. But if we don't do it, I think we get stuck in a groove, we get stuck in our own furrow, and we don't progress as human beings.
3: Before I open it up to this wonderful audience, uh, you up to this wonderful audience, I should say, Albert. I just wanted to write. I love this little passage. It's only very short. Um, but it, it, it's, it's just it's, it's something we don't think about, and I think it's spot on. This is, uh, Tolstoy's early sketch of Anna Krenina was an unsympathetic woman who met a tragic end. The final version of the novel, describing a woman of far greater complexity, was written not because Tolstoy had revised his moral position, but because, as the Czech novelist Melan Kundra says, he was listening to the wisdom of the novel. The iterative drafts of the novel spoke back to him, Kundra continues, every true novelist listens for what the super personal wisdom, for that superpersonal wisdom, which explains why great novels are always a little more intelligent than their authors. Novelists who are more intelligent than their books should go into another line of work. <laughs> and I just, well, A, I find that bloody reassuring, um, but, but B, it, it, what it, there, is, there is something magical that happens when you're creating isn't you know lots of novelists say i didn't write the book it was written through me and and this notion that you know you don't know what your characters are going to do and that you're creating something which is in in a way beyond beyond you and for for me the thing which isn't discussed at all and you do so well in this book is the unconscious
4: yes the unconscious is is something that we we, we, we don't really give it enough credit for the imagination but it is really the better half of ourselves it's the, it's the part that does the cleverer thinking it's the part that, that one philosopher called the the, the the washing machine in the basement it's going on all the time underneath without us realizing and often we all have that thing of going to sleep with a problem and waking up and somehow it's solved and and, and i think it's something we don't we don't really again we don't pay enough attention to it we, we don't we don't try and for me there's this fertile territory between the unconscious and the conscious. This this these moments in the day when we we disengage, we declutch from from reality, from 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 day-to-day concerns. And you know, the, the obvious ones that we all know about are having a shower or going for a walk. But there are other moments. I mean, for example, one of the things that I came across in the book was this idea of the waking moment, this this idea that that when you, and I try and do it when I can at the weekends, but to try when you get up in the morning, don't just immediately check your emails and look at the news. Try and use that time in the morning to do something creative, because you're still half asleep. You're still in touch with this, this sort of, damp, unconscious, sort of dreaming state, and yet your consciousness is pulling you forward. And there's this rather magical moment between the two where where, where interesting things can happen if you, if you allow them to, and then there are other. There are other examples. I mean, walking is one. Nab- Nabokov used to sit in the sit in a parked car where he used to have his best ideas. And so there are curious, quirky elements to there's, the. There's an amazing
3: artist called Agnes Martin. Yes, um, I write about her. Who yeah. uh, I write about, and, and she was an American artist, Scottish Presbyterian background, and didn't like any any fuss. And she made these amazing six foot by six foot abstract paintings that were just absolutely stunningly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she, and the way she did it. Was she'd sit in her? She had four or five primed canvases in her studio, and she would just sit on a hard chair, a bit like this, just sit there, and wait. And she'd get every single. She didn't want anybody disturbing her. Um, If you disturbed her, you. you, She lived in New Mexico in in an adobe messer that she had made herself. No mod cons at all. She had a bath, but it was outside. She put water in at 10 a.m. and hoped it was warm enough by 4 p.m. to bathe. if you, decide, if you went and disturbed her, you'd get the sharp end of the barrels of her gun. Her art dealer said to her one time, why can't I come and visit you, Agnes? And she said, I haven't got any friends, and you're one of them. <laughs> so she'd sit there, and it's really, really instructive, because none of us do this. It's about your point about don't go to the news and don't go to evils For eight hours, and she'd declutter her mind of everything. So she wouldn't think about shopping, she wouldn't worry about having an idea, she wouldn't think about people, she wouldn't think about and She'd just sit there and sit there and sit there. With these four primed canvases, These wonderful photographs of her doing this. And she would wait and wait and wait until an idea emerged through her inner core and created an image. And it was, her idea's always, what does a feeling look like? She painted feelings and it'd come out of her and then bang, she'd go on the canvas and she'd create these remarkable, almost religious paintings that when you go to see them in real life that you they just they vibrate and communicate with you and it's because she just stopped and waited for her unconscious to speak she cleared everything out of the way all the clutter and let that washing machine deep yes. down yes. do its business yes. and and through that produced great acts of creativity yes
4: and leonardo da vinci did something similar. he would when he was painting the last supper he would Sometimes some days you would just stand there and look at it and not do anything for a whole day. You'd just stand and look, and then the next day you might do something. So it's a fascinating. And the, the idea I think is also a very Eastern idea. You see it in the in the Buddhist and the Japanese notion of ma. This idea of the spaces in between, where the Japanese, you know, when they when they do a tea ceremony, there's a bow and then there's a pause and then the bow comes back up again. And the, 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 the they they talk about. A wheel not being the spokes of the wheel but being the, the the space in between the spokes which is the essence of the wheel and i write about the toll of the bell you know the, the church bell ringing it's not necessarily the ring of the bell it's the silence in between the rings of the bell where where the interesting things happen. negative space negative space and it's often when life is at its quietest that the most interesting thing interesting things happen mm. to one and i think the the danger we have in Western society that we all feel in our day-to-day lives is this compression of experience where all the gaps all the spaces in between are kind of ironed out and we we, 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 we slightly panic if we have a if we have a moment to ourselves or for standing in a queue or if we're waiting for a bus and 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 we take out our phones and we check things and, and, and it's a sort of nervous nervous, tick that we've all developed and I think it's to the detriment of creativity and to ideas mm. and that's something that I think we all need to be attentive to and to find ways of, of engineering our lives so we, we somehow reclaim or retain some of those magical moments that have been the inspiration for so many artists and writers over the, over the centuries.
3: Fabulous so now is your chance to ask Albert some questions or let's be honest pitch stories to the New Yorker <laughs> 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 or apply for Edward Enderfield's job all those things uh, he, you know he, he's here um, uh, I need a thank you so much uh, microphone. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so
2: much, Eddie. Thank you so much for the conversation. Um, as you're speaking, you've alluded to it in passing, but um, what strikes me is that the most creative people I know are the toddlers, young people, and children in my life. Um, whether it's myself and my siblings when we were growing up in Sussex, left with nothing but time in the countryside and the housing structures we built. Um, or the fabulous five-year-old I bumped into earlier in Covent Garden who'd clearly styled herself and her outfit was worthy of being on the cover of Vogue. Um, so my question really is, what are we doing that is then eliminating that as you, as you grow? And What can the parents in the audience do to nurture that in their children? And what can we do to recapture our inner child? Well, this is, this is curious
4: pattern isn't there of life where where you you have this amazing open mind that you somehow lose in your teens and yet we also see in our 20s that many of the greatest inventions breakthroughs happen to artists and and scientists and innovators in their 20s where where the the, the freshness of youth combines with, with the balance of experience but I think when it comes to children I think for me it's about reading Reading, opening your minds to art, to edu- to to keeping your minds open to ideas. and and but uh, it, it's difficult. and I don't know, I think all the forces of technology are conspired against us. So I think for me, with my children, it's keeping technology at bay, keeping it very, very strictly limited. If you look at all the great leaders in technology, they're very, very strict with their children. <laughs> they, they don't allow them near, near iPhones or iPads. So I think that, for me, is the first lesson. I think exposing them to, to, to art, to reading, to areas that they may not be used to, as I was saying earlier, to, to, to broaden their minds are other things that you can do that are most effective. What I, do you
3: find with your... I think your, we've got a problem with education. And, um, yeah. so I've written about this quite a lot, so I won't bone on about it. But, um, you know, I've had children have gone through the system and um, they've all done fine and they've come out lost and sad. And, and that's not just because of their dad, <laughs> it's because all their friends are lost and sad as well. And um, just education, teachers are amazing people. I've married a teacher and, and my sister is a teacher. So, but the system in which they have to work is, is nuts. So the the children is directly answer your question. As soon as you go to school, you you're forced into this ridiculous exam culture, and 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 exactly what the exam culture does is it isolates you. You are an individual. This is what you'll pass or fail. The idea you could fail at eleven is ridiculous. Uh, you'll you'll pass or fail, and it's all down to you. Whereas we know creativity, as we've been discussing, is something that happens. Among a lot of people, there's no such thing as an individual genius. It means that somebody happened to latch onto something within a group of people and crystallise it. But it comes from a lot of different places. So they go to school. They're taught that they're, they're isolated and made anxious by an exam culture. And on top of that, you put on social media, which is also isolating and anxiety-inducing. And we're sending a whole generation of children into a mental health crisis. And the thing is, what, what are they learning at school? What do my kids learn at school? They learn a bunch of facts which they can find out on. Google. And actually what would have been much more valuable to them and their creativity and their ability to come up with ideas of value for our societies would be not to, to provide rote answers, but actually learn how to ask really great questions. Yeah. So not to be judged on as an answer right or wrong, but is what they've said new and interesting? And so I'd argue that all schools should be like art schools. Because if you go to an art school and you just paint like Bridget Riley did, you're at Nobody's very interested. But if you learn how Sirat painted, and then you apply that knowledge to so your own lived experience, then you get something pretty special. And, and you do that in groups, and you do it with people. So the answer to your question is, I would tear up what we're doing with our education system. I'd re, re-evaluate how schools are judged, not just on EBAC and a few exams, but actually on the whole, are they kids being taken to museums? Are they playing sport? Are they collaborating and learning and sharing and making together? Uh, and I don't, I, you know, all those exams. I can tell you, they're a con. They're not worth a bean.
4: And I would add that I, I and I've interested in your on that will that the the obsession with with STEM is 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 at the expense of steam and, and and the arts and our and I feel this government is going in a not in a great direction on that front. And the arts are so important, not only to our, us as individuals but also to us as an economy. The creative economy is worth you'll probably know the number to this, but several billion pounds. And we are. One of the great, great creative economies of the world, and, and we must value that. We must. What we're not very good at is measuring it, and 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 really celebrating it, and and pushing our our students through the system to 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 be the best creative people they can be in the in the, in the world of the future. And that is often by studying subjects which may not seem completely relevant to a to a to a job, but nonetheless mm-hmm. open the mind to the humanities and the art and all these things which create people who ask the right questions, as Will says, or new
3: questions. Super, so lots of questions here, one, two, three. Thank you very much.
1: Um, You mentioned the creator economy, right? And I was thinking about that as you were speaking, because at the beginning, we all three of us were having a conversation about creativity for productivity's sake. So maybe if you work in a creative environment, you have to come up with an idea, you're kind of pushing yourself. And just this idea that you have to come up with ideas that an algorithm or will actually get accepted and will further your career or will further anything it is that's productive or economy related rather than just creating for the sake of creating and I'm just wondering like how if you do work in those sort of environments where your creativity is monetized how you can take time out to still just fulfill yourself to just create something for the sake of creating so you don't get burnt out so I guess I'm asking for advice but yeah
3: Albert, can well, you I, strongly, I, of that? I strongly believe
4: that creating for one's own sake often leads one in un, unexpected directions and, and, and you don't always know what the answer is when you're asking the question so that's the first thing I'd say and I think I think what's important in businesses is to create as I said I think earlier an environment of safety where you can have a bad idea because a bad idea often leads to a good idea so I think that's an important mindset to instill in, a, in any in any company
3: William Kentridge has got this He's, he's a South African artist um, and um, he's 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 very clever and very funny, and uh, he set up this um, new performance art space in Joburg, and it's he said and and it's called the Centre for the Less Good Idea, uh, and and the, the thinking behind it is if good ideas have given us the shit show we're currently living in, why don't we have some less good ideas? Uh, and it's an amazing space, um, and it's a very collaborative space, it's not judgmental, it's all about devising work and devising ideas uh, over a period of time and then sharing them. And that would be my advice. I'd never, ever, ever try generating an idea for money. I think it's, it's, it's a fool's game. You know, there's a wonderful line by Leonard Cohen, that, about, the, about a dealer trying to deal a card so high and wild you'll never have to deal another. And it's like, forget it. You know, Do something which matters to you, which you think is important, which is going to add value to the world, and, and go through that process of sharing it, and knocking it around, because at the very least, you're going to have a lovely collaborative experience, would be my advice. Right. So I would never chase money or ideas that you think might make money. I'd chase what you think is important and then create work around that. And you might be poor, but you'll be really happy. <laughs> Hi there, um,
5: earlier on you spoke about uh, curiosity. For me, um, I, I kind of uh, take to wonderment, which takes me to my, what you're saying about children. Um, and, and more recently, um, I've started to play I, I'm in my, in my um, other part of my life, I'm, I'm also a dance artist, so oh, wow. I recently went into the studio and started playing, not because I, I had to, but it was about where did it take me and and hearing you more speak i i realized that have we stopped really playing in the workplace or you know where you say productivity even power of productivity what is productivity how where where does our imag- imagination go um how do we exercise that through playfulness without any intention or any purpose but being f- free uh, you know taking away the confinements of um, strategy or uh, KPIs, <laughs> and yeah, so if, I don't know if you could expand you on
3: that. You have, have to break. You've got to break the rules. I mean, Albert talked about Shakespeare. 30, Thirty-seven amazing plays, which 400 years later have been performed in pretty much every country in the world. Three thousand new words and phrases, which had never been used before, or in those those plays, and you've got to be naughty. So if you look at the um, artist Marcel Duchamp who is, I suppose, most famous French artist for coming up with a urinal and, and suggesting that it's a work of art. And what um, <laughs> and he was just being really, really naughty. So he was in America, and it was 1917, and there was gonna be this, he was part of a group of people putting together the biggest exhibition ever of contemporary art in North America. And you didn't have to be, there was no judges and no juries. As long as you paid to, to show your work, you could show your work. So he thought, he'd challenge the liberal notion of those rules. He would see if he could break the rules and be a, and be a bit naughty. And, and so, he, he, so he asked four questions, which changed art forever, actually changed society. Um, led to Dadaism, Surrealism, Punk Rock, Situationism. Four questions any child of five years old could have asked. The first question he asked in 1917, which was during the First World War, why does art have to be beautiful? Because the world isn't beautiful. So he chose something ugly or anti-retinal, which was this urinal. Second question he asked is, why does art have to be unique? Why do we obsess about uniqueness? So he chose something which was ready-made, something that was already existed. Third, these are simple questions, right? Third question he asked is, why does the art have to be? Why does an artist have to make art? Why can't they just choose something? So he chose this object. And then the fourth question, which changed everything, which is why Tracy Emmons' bed's worth a million quid and yours isn't, <laughs> is... is, is <laughs> He said, up until that point, if you wanted to be considered an artist, you had to choose the medium first. So sculpt with with, with wood or, or, or stone or paint on panel or canvas. You had to choose the medium first and then you could express your idea. He said, no, 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 no. The concept is paramount. So, I, so you have the idea and then you try and choose the best medium with which to communicate it. And he quite literally wanted to take the piss. So so <laughs> he, 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 he chooses this urinal and he calls it, he signs it Armat, and it might have been done by somebody else, it might have been, but it probably wasn't. And he signs it Armat, and he sends it off with his, his fee to the society, of which he is a member, uh, to get shown, and there's this massive argument with all the other people, all the other organizers, saying, we can't show it, you know, it's urinal, it's disgusting, and Duchamp's thinking, well, you said you could show it, you know, anybody could show their work of art, this is my work of art. So anyway, there's this huge row. Duchamp exits laughing, they decide not only not to show it, but to smash it to smithereens. But Duchamp didn't mind that because he just went around the corner and bought another one, right? (laughs) And there's now eight of these things. And and it is hilarious, because when you go into a a museum, the Tate's got one, and you see people look at Duchamp's urinal, and go, you know, really, my God, that's that's really beautiful. (laughs) And I've been to a lot of urinals in my life, (laughs) and I've never seen a bloke stand back and go, that urinal's really (laughs) And so it's it's not beautiful, but what so what that tells us? A is he was a very funny man, and he brought humour into art where it really needed. He uh, he was very naughty, so he broke rules. He asked the questions nobody else was willing to ask, although they were really 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 simple. Um, and and he was willing uh, he was willing to take to, to, to take a risk, and just by doing those few acts, he, he changed everything. So I would take a, a leaf out of his book if I was you.
4: And I think the thing, to take another strand of your question, what fascinates me is how businesses stay creative, how they retain this imaginative facility in, in faculty in their, in, their, in their bones, which got them going in the first place. And too often you see companies that start small and lead and entrepreneurial and, and playful and risk-taking and experimental gradually congeal into these bureaucracies and, and, and you know, um, H R legally driven companies where where risk is, is is terrifying to them and and that's why you see companies fail and you, you see big companies can't innovate and there's a very interesting moment in a company's trajectory where they lose this and they lose this idea of playfulness that you're referring to
3: and what Duchamp realised crucially and it's about a great thing about ideas is you can have exactly the same thing and if you change its context its meaning completely changes so 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 a urinal in a gents is or your island art gallery completely. The, the way we treat it, the way we consider it, the way we respond to it, the values we place upon it, completely change. And we never think about context. We think about going to work in an office. Change the context, you know, change it. You'll see it's like things you'll see things differently. Just picking up on your last point, that,
0: um, you've touched on so many things, I'm just trying to narrow it down. The, the Indians actually would sit under a tree for, for days waiting for enlightenment and um, And they called it the concept of nothingness, and it kind of got built into mathematics, which gave us the the zero. And without the zero, we wouldn't have computing. So so it's kind of all coming full circle. We're now in the world of quantum computing where things happen straight away. Um, I work in the world of leadership, high performance. So all the stuff you're talking about, how do, you you know, and somebody talked about KPIs. It's, it's, what I've realized, I work with you know, red, we work at Red Bull, Google, Special Forces, all sorts of cool sounding stuff. But what I've realised is it's, it's going back to your very, very first comment about what's missing in the world and organisations <coughs> is people have forgotten how to be human. And so for me, everything you've talked about is about the science and application of something f- called flow. That's probably not yeah. the word. Flow Flow, as in, you know, Maslow, chicks sent me high. so I'm a disciple of, Jamie Wheeler, Stephen Kotler, we use flow as a high performance tool. Yeah. And really it's about biology. And people think it's quite fluffy, but when you get into it, it's really hardcore science. And I think, I think what we need to do is to get people and organizations to realise that you need to strip away all this organizational crap, as you say, that's been layered onto us. Um, because the highest performance people and organizations, they understand their biology. So so how do we get people to Organizations to realize that this isn't woo and fluffy. It's actually state of the art, high performance. I, I find that's my biggest issue: is yeah. people saying, "Oh, yeah, that's a bit fluffy," but actually, it's not.
4: it's not. It's completely vital. And I think I think how how companies organize themselves is is due for a revolution. Really, I think it's due. Is, I think the, the, even the words KPI. I think uh, when a company starts talking about KPIs, it's kind of I think mean, a little bit simplistic. But it's it's beginning for me to be on the on the on the, on the top of the hill and begin the downward slope, I think I think there are well-meaning layers of, of management put into place in companies that, would, that actually subtly erode the, the ability of that company to innovate and to have new ideas and for the people within it to be human and to use their imaginations. It's difficult because businesses have to execute on a daily basis. They have to do the things they do. And so, you know, having been inside a business and being inside a business where you're balancing those two things is not easy, but I think the balance is perhaps talking about corporate life in general has perhaps tilted a little bit too far in the bureaucratic direction for, the, for larger companies. And that's why they tend to drift off into, into failure over time.
3: Do you agree with that? Right, probably got time for... I have to say, you've been an amazing audience. Can I just say that? Um, okay, two, two questions? We'll be quick. The lady in the middle there and the lady here.
1: Thank you, um, Albert, and Will, for the wonderful discussion. Actually, myself, the artist, my past life was in finance, and uh, just
3: like so, Jeff Coons.
1: Oh yeah, well not there yet. <laughs> so my question will be: I felt like uh, all the discussion felt like the imaginations about liberations, and also how we break through the conventional, and uh, really just yes, take a risk and. You know, get out there, do things. Really, kind of had that expansions in our mind, and I want to touch a little bit more. Um, on to you uh, guys about active imagination, which Jung's theory, uh, the bridge between consciousness, subconsciousness. Um, Is something you can touch on that? Thank you. The
4: bridge between consciousness and con- and, un- and unconsciousness.
1: consciousness, uh, Well, we touched on it
4: a bit earlier, I th- I, but I think I think it's it's a vital and underexplored. I mean, it's been explored endlessly by Freud. But um, the curious thing about Freud is he didn't really believe in the imagination. He was he was not particularly excited by it, and he, and he felt sort of defeated by it. But but the, the, but as I say in the book, actually, what Freud enabled was was a whole flood of imaginative work that came out of his work in psychoanalysis. I, th- I think he, he did make an enormous contribution to the imagination, albeit unwittingly. But the, um, the unconscious is, is, is vital. And I think, I think we, got, as I said before, we've got to find ways of tapping into it. We have to allow ourselves to get bored occasionally. You know, Archimedes was bored in the bath when he watched the water overflowing over the bathtub and <coughs> shouted, Eureka! And Isaac Newton was bored when he was sitting in the garden and watched an apple fall from a tree. His, his mind was disengaged, and it's just these moments of disengagement that I think are so so powerful if, if we if we allow them to be. I, know, <coughs> um,
3: <sorry. laughs> I think it's a London plane tree. Oh, uh, Theaster Gates is an artist, very brilliant artist. He's got this lovely phrase. He, he says, "You don't know when inspiration's going to strike, but you can make sure you're ready to answer the door." Yeah. You know, I think there's that just being primed for the unconscious.
1: Thank you both very much. Um, I wanted to pick up on the point you made at the beginning Albert which was about it feels that like we've stagnated or plateaued in terms of ideas innovation and invention and Albert actually does know me. I used to work at Condé and recently I was with my junior team doing some social media content and they filmed me talking about something then afterwards they said oh, we can't use that there's a fly there's a fly in, in, in film and we were talking about um, climate change I said well Make that the point, make it like it's a harbinger and it's like the Bible or the locusts come, you know, turn that into a thing. And they were like, they stared at me and were like, what is she on? And then I made them talk to a workshop and they eventually said, where did you get the idea from? And I was like, guys, open your brains, come on. And we had this long discussion in the office about it. And they said, how do we cultivate an imagination that operates a bit like that? And I said, I think it's because all of you have got the luxury of too much information all the time and you don't, everything doesn't seem new really anymore apart from maybe if it's generated by AI. So I think the question I've got is, would you agree that in a world where everything's available all the time, that nothing seems to trigger the imagination as much as it did in the past because there's a sense of familiarity or fatigue with information and ideas? And if that's the case, where does it go from here into the metaverse and beyond? And is there any hope for a renewed muscle of imagination when we're so spoiled for ideas? I think, there's, ideas?
4: A, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a surfeit of information, a surfeit of... of, of Data that, that we have to we have to detach ourselves from it to some extent, and we have to allow ourselves to to, to to be to be to be released from it. I think I think another element of it that is worrying in a way is 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 this is the effects of social media, the effects of everything we do being observed and being public and being transparent, and we can't take risks. And I th- and I sometimes wonder if when I look at younger people, if who are perhaps identifying their ideas around the groups of people they want to be part of, that they 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 would never risk. A bold idea, or a dangerous idea, or something that would, in any way, upset the people they want to be, to belong to, and I think I think that's a, that's a problem. And I think I think why why would you risk having a new idea? That's a question that I sometimes ask myself of, of the younger generation,
3: particularly. Yeah. I mean, I, I suspect that we, I suspect we have the same amount of ideas. It's just the way we burn through them, right? You know, so 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 everything happens so quickly, and it's another thing, and it's another thing, and it's another thing. You don't sort of can't dwell. It's like we're we sort of have this sort of constant indigestion because there's just all this stuff coming at us which is new. So we're kind of obsessed with newness. And, and in a way, there, and, and we, we don't appreciate oldness or, you know, and, and things like, you know, just, you know, just doing the same thing again and again and again, that repetitive thing, those sort of rhythms. Actually, we've, we, we don't have that. So in, in a way, we have too many ideas, and they're, and they're kind of trivial. And, and so I think what we need is better ideas or less good ideas. But take more time over them. To allow them to percolate. I do think a, so, and just to... let them come out. And then, and then take time. I think none of us... I started to start, this. I started the book with an anecdote with a guy called Mark Harvey, who asked me to do a talk at, uh, Soho, in Soho, actually. And I said I couldn't, because I was supposed to be writing a book about penguin. I didn't know what to write about, but it was about perception. And he said, fair enough. And then the next day he sent me a note um, and uh, it was a picture of him and his dad. His dad was a guy called um, here's Tom, a guy called Mark Harvey. Is his dad, who was a sculptor, and he taught people like Anthony Gormley and stuff. And he said, "This is a picture of my dad. He's three years old. Is Tom in this picture?" And he said, "My dad was an artist, and every day we'd go and walk on my pebbly beach. And every day, dad would find a handful of beautiful stones, pebbles, and shells to show me. And it was so beautiful." And then one day, I wanted to go ahead of him, so I could find all the beautiful ones. And I went all along the beach, and I, it was just a bad day, there weren't any, until I turned around and my dad said, Tom. And he had a handful of beautiful pebbles and, and stones and, and, and shells that Tom had missed. And, and his picture is of his dad in what is called his beach stance. So he's doubled over, standing, doubled over, just staring at the ground. And the reason he could see this stuff, and Tom couldn't, because he just took the time and then he, he learned to look, and then he could see the beauty where everybody else just rushed by. And I, I think that's the same thing for ideas. You just, it's like you know, your situation, you find yourself in where you have to come up with ideas. It's madness. It's just slow down. You know, everything is such a rush, and then the idea will come through in its own time. You know, it, might, it might take 20 years, but it will arrive. Uh, we've got to stop, but you have been the most wonderful audience, and Albert, you've been the most wonderful guest. Thank you very Thank much. Will you we much. give them a very warm round of applause?
2: <laughs> this episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Albert Reid and was presented by Will Gompertz. It was produced by Esme Bright and I make the show with Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed it, consider taking out a subscription to How To Plus, our members get free access to all of our live streams, a members-exclusive podcast that goes out way, way, way in advance of this one, and generous discounts to all of our live events. Use the code POD50, that's capital P-O-D-5-0, for a permanent half-price discount. Till next time, I'm Vas Thanks for listening.